Esther, a story of heroes, heroines, villains, bad guys, story of politics, power, and wealth. It's a princess-type story from being a common person to becoming queen. It's a story that goes beyond these pages of the Bible, a story of a great cosmic struggle, powerful forces trying to destroy Israel and God's salvation plan, a story where God triumphs again, and it was so simple for him to do so. All he needed was a young teenage girl. So what's the real story? And that's what I want to try to get a sense of. And we'll best understand the story if we understand the characters of the story. So as I go through the story, I'll be adding history, traditions, and possibilities to the story. The story begins with King Xerxes, one of the most powerful kings that this earth has ever seen. Esther, the book of Esther begins this way. This happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet to all, for all of his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. Xerxes was a man so wealthy, so powerful, that he could invite his nobles and all of his military leaders from his whole empire to a banquet lasting for 180 days. Six months of feasting and drinking. Now we're also sure from history that this was a war council, but it was also a time to brag. Xerxes put on a six-month feast for hundreds, perhaps thousands of people, simply to reveal himself, because he could. What's the point of being wealthy unless you can brag about it? The widow, a few number of years ago, of the late Philippine president was asked how wealthy she was. And her reply was, if you know how wealthy you are, then you're not wealthy. Xerxes was like that. He had wealth beyond his ability to keep track of it. And he wanted the world to see it and to be in awe of him. So in the third year of his reign, he partied. And Xerxes loved to party. Uh, his life was devoted to it. He loved wine, women, and luxury. Susa, his winter, winter capital, was no backwards dirty village. Uh, the ruins of the city would cover over 4,900 acres. His palace alone covered 123 acres, which included the throne room, the house of the king, the harem, the inner and outer courts. It also had a gardens and terraces. His throne room uh, was about 210 feet by 210 feet. It had 36 columns supporting the roof, and it was here in his throne room that he'd give banquets uh, to his nobility. The floor of the throne room was paved with red, blue, black, white marble, all laid down in, uh, so that they in pieces so they formed a mosaic. The throne had a crimson-colored canopy over and a carpet leading up to it. Only the king's feet could walk on that carpet. And out in the front were the palace gardens. Here in his throne room and the palace gardens is where he partied for 180 days with his nobility. And so that's the setting. That's the, and if you look at the picture there, that's actually a reconstruction of his throne room on the outside and then the palace gardens were out front there. So now the man. Xerxes had inherited his kingdom from a long line of Persian kings, kings who were mighty generals conquering all in their path. 
And that was Xerxes' dream. He was going to continue the glory. The world that he had left to conquer was Greece, never fully conquered by his ancestors. And so he was the world's mightiest, wealthiest man, and he can just taste victory. But Xerxes also inherited what seemed to be the family temper. And uh, that long line of kings were known for their tempers. And he would often do foolish things. Xerxes also loved women. And sex wasn't the issue. He had a harem full of beautiful women. But Xerxes was always on a conquest, trying to get women into his bed that were not his. It was actually a dangerous thing to be part of his nobility because your wife was probably going to be one of his conquests. And that moral failure would bring him a lot of grief. One of the women that he pursued was the wife of Mastis, uh, one of his officials. And she would have nothing to do with him. And Xerxes became confused, uh, consumed with her. Her daughter was married to one of Xerxes' sons. And having got her into the palace as his daughter-in-law, he then carried on an affair with her. Uh, willing or not, history doesn't record that, just that he did it. And while he's sleeping with the daughter, he's pursuing the mother. Now, enter Vashti, his queen. Her name means beautiful woman. And when the Bible says that she was lovely to look at, it means exactly that. Only the most beautiful of women were allowed to grace the king's arm or be part of the harem. But Vashti was not beautiful in character. Now, much has been said about her, about being strong in character, standing up for her modesty and so on, but that's all surmised. History does not record her that way. And she saw a threat in Vashti's wife. Now, Vashti wouldn't have been threatened by the fact that Xerxes wanted to sleep with this woman because he did it with countless women, women on a continual basis, whether they were his wives or not. But uh, her relationship to Xerxes was that of being his queen. Uh, she was a beautiful woman who graced his arm when he had royal functions. She was the woman uh, that would produce him his legal heir. Uh, Xerxes didn't care cared less about how many kids were running around that looked like him as long as one of them was his legal heir and Vashti had produced that for him uh, in the son Artaxerxes. With the title of queen came power, wealth, and privilege that the other women in the harem didn't have and we don't know why she was threatened by Masti's wife who was continually refusing the king. Uh, perhaps she was thinking that her position was precarious another woman would take her place, I don't know. But as month and month past with Xerxes being consumed with this woman who wouldn't have him, she decided to take a hand in the situation. And so she had a, the, this wife, this woman mutilated so her face was just horribly scarred. She wanted to make this beautiful woman look so ugly that Xerxes would no longer pursue her, would forget her. Now you can uh, under, uh, imagine Masti's feelings when his wife is being pursued by the king and he can't do anything about it. If he objects, he's probably gonna die. Uh, and then to have the queen take his wife and just cut up her face and scar it horribly. You can imagine his feelings. And so he flees and uh, he fled to Babylon, started a rebellion there. He wants to overthrow Xerxes. The outcome was that Xerxes had to send the army out and they actually put down the rebellion and Mastis was captured and executed. 
But it's not hard to understand how later in the story why there were officials who wanted to kill Xerxes. Because he gave those who were closest to him plenty of reasons to want revenge. And Vashti had accomplished her revenge. One more story that likely affects the story of Esther. There was many of these stories. Vashti decided one day that she wanted to make an offering to her god. So she had 14 young noblemen sons, young men, taken and sacrificed to her god. What do you think those noble families felt about her as the queen when she took your son and had him killed? So you can imagine the feelings of the nobility towards Vashti. Now let's go back to Xerxes' party. At the end of the 180 days, Xerxes decided to not just have his nobility there and the military leaders, he invites everyone in the city of Susa to come. And uh, he puts out hangings into the garden made of white, blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material. And these were fastened by silver rings to the marble pillars. Couches were placed around the gardens for people to recline on, made of gold and silver, set on pavement made of marble and costly stones and mother of pearl, everything designed to display his wealth. Everyone was served as much wine as he wanted to drink. Each goblet was made of gold. Each, one, each goblet was unique to itself and a work of art. Xerxes' party was for the men only. The women were in a different part of the palace, and Vashti was holding her party for the women. It would have been the same display of luxury and seven days of drunkenness there also. And at the end of his seven days, Xerxes has displayed his all and his wealth, his power, his generosity. The only thing that he hasn't displayed is his wife, the queen. He's proud of her beauty, extreme beauty, and likely drunk at the time, he makes a request that Vashti come wearing her royal crown, literal, uh, literal translation would be her royal turban. And this was not a request for her to come and preside with him in a royal function way type of thing. Uh, think of it this way. Come here, Vashti. I have a few thousand drunk men here who would like to see your beauty. Come and be on display for them. Now, scholars disagree about what was he really asking. Some think that in his drunken state he was... a uh, Insisting that she appear wearing only her crown, that's not likely. But what is very likely is that Vashti found the request degrading and she refused. Now history also, folklore and so on, records that the Vashti and the queen were not getting along. Now Vashti is recorded as being a very cruel, power-hungry woman. And uh, history also, there's hints there that a women's rights movement was starting. And Vashti, in her own drunken state, may have been putting Xerxes in his place, I'll show him kind of deal. Whether that's the case or not, she overstepped her cultural bounds there. Whether her motive for refusal was pure or impure, we'll never know. But the result was, it was a direct challenge in front of his entire empire to the king and his authority. He was king. He always got what he wanted. No one dared to disobey the king. It was a public shaming of Xerxes. His wife had disobeyed him in front of all of his people. 
And his reaction was very predictable for him. When Xerxes was crossed, he would fly into a rage. He had killed people for less. And so in his rage, he calls his counselors together and he asks them for advice. And Jewish tradition says that Mucanum, one of the counselors, had his own marriage problems. His wife was one of these modern women's liberation women and was challenging his male authority. And so he saw his opportunity to put his own wife in her place. Now, that's just Jewish folklore. We don't know that it's true or not. It's an interesting piece of folklore. But what is more likely is these counselors saw an opportunity to get back at Vashti. You see, she hadn't been making friends amongst the nobility. Perhaps they personally had had family members killed by her or abused by her. We have to remember that Vashti is recorded by history as a very nasty woman. So again, we cannot be sure of their motives, but they did take Vashti down. And so they pitched a national catastrophe to Xerxes. All the women, they said, in the kingdom would take courage from Vashti's actions. They would all rebel against their husbands. From then on, the men would be disrespected and the kingdom would fall into discord. In short, the women will rule and pictured with such horror, Xerxes is just like putty in their hands. And he asks the question, well, what should I do? Well, they had the answer. Make a royal decree that can never be revoked. Make a law that Vashti be deposed from being queen and never come into the king's presence again. Let her position be given to someone else who is better than her. And when this story is published throughout the whole kingdom, all the women will fear their husbands and will respect them. In short, we'll avoid this women's liberation movement that's starting and the men will rule. And that's the story they gave to Xerxes. And so the king and the rest of his nobles, they were pleased with the advice. And I believe amongst the nobles, probably there was a lot of gloating, a lot of rejoicing because Vashti, the cruel queen, had been destroyed. They'd found their opportunity. What happened to Vashti? We're not totally sure, likely at that point she was relegated to the harem, going from the queen to becoming a nobody. The harems were very crowded. You were shut off from society. Um, just with the other women in there and the eunuchs who looked after them, there were places of boredom and jealousy and fighting. And so Vashti, in a single moment, went from presiding over a lavish banquet full of her self-importance to suddenly becoming a nobody in the harem never able to see the king again. It wasn't until Xerxes died and Artaxerxes, their son, came to the throne, she was then re restored back now as the, king, uh, the king's mother and so gained a place of prominence again. So after this event, four years pass, Xerxes goes off to war, a war that he's sure that he's going to win a war in which God displays his hand against the Persians, and there's a lot of interesting stories there of that war, and I encourage you to go and study it out. We just don't have time here. But after a year of defeats, and Xerxes now starting to realize, I'm not going to win this war against those Greeks, he returns home and uh, leaves his general to fight on in Greece. Over the next three years, they suffer more and more defeats until finally they all have to return home, abandoning all hope of conquering Greece. And so four years of war have passed, four years without a queen. 
With the conquest of Greece a failure, Xerxes now turns his attention to domestic affairs. He wanted to be the great conqueror and he failed. From now on, he turns his attention more and more to his lifestyle, wine, women, and song. From now on, from, he began to rely more and more on his counselors and his eunuchs to run the kingdom. And I must explain the role of eunuchs here. In ancient kingdoms, uh, the kings relied on eunuchs to rule their kingdoms. And so boys and young men from wealthy, educated families were chosen from the conquered nations, and they were made into eunuchs, and their lifelong job was to serve the king as slaves. Some were chosen and made into eunuchs to take care of the harem. Others, like Daniel, were chosen to be educated and to become the king's counselors and rulers. And so Daniel rose up uh, to be right underneath the king at times serving the idea was that being eunuchs, they would not desire families and would give all their loyalty and energy to serving the king. And so four years have passed. Having failed in Greece, Xerxes decides that he needs a queen again. Now we have to be realistic here. He's not looking for a wife as we think of a wife, not that kind of relationship. He's looking for a beautiful woman to sit at his side in royal functions, to be the queen, to entertain noble women guests. Now, he had a harem full of women that he could have gone and chosen a queen from. But the counselors know how to gain his favor, appeal to his lust. You see, this is a man that's consumed by his lust. And so they tell him, let a search be made through the whole empire for beautiful young virgins. Beautiful young virgins meant young women who had just entered puberty. Once puberty had happened, they were now considered to be able to be married. They knew exactly how to appeal to this later middle-aged king. Jewish tradition tells us that the number they requested was for 400 young virgins to be collected. Now whether that number is true or not, we don't know, but let's use it this morning. And so what they're offering Xerxes is that he would have a new virgin, teenage virgin, in his bed for 400 nights. He has been pursuing up to this time every sort of sexual experience that he can for years. Now they're offering him something new, an endless supply of virgins. And Xerxes is delighted with it. And as these beautiful young girls are gathered up all over the empire, one young girl in the capital city of Susa is caught up in the suite. Hadasha is her Hebrew name. Esther is her Persian name. Hadassah was the Jewish name for the myrtle plant. We're unsure of what Esther means. There are three strong possibilities. Esther is very, in the Persian word for Esther, is very close to their word for myrtle. And it's possible that Esther and Hadassah mean both the same thing, myrtle. Esther is also very close to the Persian name of Ishtar, which is the name of their goddess of love, their fertility goddess. Again, that's a strong possibility because as the Jews were dispersed out into these different nations, the nations often would rename them, giving them a, a name of their own language and they would name them after their gods and goddesses. The third possibility is that Esther means star in Persian. And so you can take your pick. Uh, we just do not know for sure what the name Esther means or which one. How did Esther feel about being drafted for the king's harem? Again, we're not told that in the story. 
We do know that culturally many of the families uh, would have been happy because having a daughter as the king's concubine gave the family increased power and prestige. If the girl especially pleased the king, it could result in a lot of favors given. And we have to understand that culturally back then, girls were considered property of the family. And so they would often be traded, used to gain family advantage. And so we have an example of this of Abraham when he went to Egypt and Sarah was, his, uh, was so beautiful he was afraid the king would kill Abraham in order to take uh, Sarah. And so he said, let's just spread the word that you're my sister. And she was his half-sister. He married his half-sister. And so the king was told that uh, she was his sister and that she was available. And so the king took her and married her. And so for a few months, she lived with the king, with Pharaoh. And he was so happy with her, he kept sending presents and slaves it says that he made Abraham very happy, or very wealthy. What he was really doing is saying, I'm so happy with your sister. Here, have some more money, have some more slaves, have some more prestige. He was just lavishing it on Abraham. It must have been very bitter every time that he received, Abraham received a gift. Um, but it's an example how if you had a sister a daughter or whatever that was given to the king, it gave you often wealth and power and prestige that you would gain. Was this the case with Esther? Did she want to go to the king's harem? Did Mordecai, her uncle, want her to go so he gained prestige? Or was it simply because she was known to be very beautiful and she was caught up in that draft? Was she going as an unwi uh, unwilling Slave to the king's lust. Knowing that she would only likely spend one night with the king and never see him again. These girls never saw the king again unless they made enough of an impression on him that he would remember her name and ask for them again, ask for her again. After that one night, each girl disappeared into the harem, never to see society again, never to see their families again. Their whole world was within those harem walls. It would have been a place of disappointed women, a few children, and the eunuchs who were looking after them. Can you imagine what that would be like, being in that kind of a place? Did these girls choose it, or were they forced? For many of them, it would be a family decision. Did Esther choose it? Was she forced to go there? You'll find traditions that argue it both ways. One Jewish tradition says that Mordecai had actually married her and she was taken into the harem against her will. Scripture actually gives us a totally different story. As a young girl, her parents had died. And Mordecai, who was her cousin, had adopted her. And he had raised her as his daughter. Now having been chosen, these girls did not immediately go to the king, into the king. They had to go through a year of preparation first, a year of ritualistic baths, uh, daily using a paste to try to lighten their skin color, using oils which are supposed to make them beautiful. They were taught in the use of all the different cosmetics and perfumes. They were taught to how to conduct themselves in the presence of royalty. Basically, you have 400 girls all going to school for a year learning how to be queen, and the winner gets the prize. The loser gets one night with the king. 
It was a lot of competition. Your whole life was at stake here. And as Esther enters the harem and says goodbye to Mordecai, this would be the last time that she would see him in her life unless she becomes queen. No man could enter the harem except for the king and the appointed eunuchs. Mordecai has a goal for Esther. She's going to be queen. With this in mind, he tells her not to review her heritage. Don't tell anyone that you're a Jew. Because anti-Semitism was alive and well in those days. And if people knew that she was a Jew, it would go hard with her. And so she's taken into the palace and she's given over to Haggai, the eunuch in charge of the harem. And for some reason, he's totally he's taken with her. And she earns his favor. And he does all that he can do to make sure that she's going to win this competition for the queen. He fast tracks her into her year of beauty treatment, gives her special foods. He assigns seven maids to her and he moves her into an apartment part of the where she has her own privacy. She has her own apartment there within the palace. What has happened here is the chief eunuch has already chosen the future queen. And this is significant. We must remember that the eunuchs ruled the palace and they ruled the kingdom. Xerxes had been very, become very dependent on them. What the eunuchs wanted, they manipulated. And they worked together on this and they made it happen. They, so what we have here is Esther is being chosen as queen before the king even knows about her. To the king, she's still a nameless virgin in his harem. Meanwhile, Mordecai is left outside in suspense. All he can do is pace back and forth outside those harem walls, hoping that he'll pick up some piece of gossip coming out of the harem. And so while they can't see each other, they do figure out ways of, through the eunuchs of passing messages back and forth. A year passes this way. It's now several years since Vashti has been deposed, and in the seventh year, ten, tenth month of Xerxes' reign, Esther is sent to spend a night with them. Each virgin was allowed to take what she wanted out of the harem to be with her as she goes to the king. Clothing, clothes, uh, jewelry, etc., what she wants to take, she can take with her and then take that into the harem. In the evening, she's to go to be with the king. In the morning, she's returned to a different part of the harem. The harem was divided into two sections, the virgins who are waiting to go to be with the, the king and then the others that had been with the king. Most of these women would never see the king again, locked away for the rest of their lives. All this time, Esther is keeping her identity secret and she's winning the favor of all who come in contact with her. And as she goes to the king, she takes nothing with her except what Haggai advises her to take. And in that we see great wisdom because she, instead of choosing herself, she asks for his advice. You see, he knows the king. He works with the king all the time. He knows exactly what he's like. And he knows how to best set Esther at an advantage. Haggai is determined that Esther will be queen. And the Bible says Xerxes was attracted to Esther more than any of the other girls and he chose her as queen. Did he choose her immediately after that one night? Did he wait until he had spent some time getting to know her before deciding? Uh, did he go through all the girls before he decided? We are not told that. 
All we're told is that he was attracted to her and he made her queen. And so he throws another party, a great banquet for all his nobles and officials. The holidays proclaimed through the whole empire and Xerxes distributes gift with royal liberality. Or putting it another way, the party was enjoyed by all and everyone went home richer. And thus it was, a young virgin teenage girl became queen of Persia. We're going to stop there in the story and pick it up next week. So what do I learn from this story, though, so far? My thoughts go to Romans 8, 28. I'm going to read it from the message, first of all. That's why we can be so sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. Our from another translation, and we know that God works everything for good together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. You know, Esther's circumstances up until this story have been good. Yes, she had the heartache of losing both her parents, but she had a loving cousin who had adopted her as his daughter and had raised her. She had grown up in the faith. Likely raised in a prosperous home, her, uh, or her cousin was likely a man of influence and some wealth because we're told that he sat in the palace gates. And that's where the officials sat and made judgments. People would come see them. And so he was probably an official of some sort. He had influence of some sort. But then suddenly her life takes a turn for the worse. Ripped out of her home as a young teenager, placed in a harem with hundreds of other women, cut off from society, society and family, no hope of a normal marriage, married as a concubine to a debauched, often cruel king who spent most of his life just chasing women. None of us could say that her circumstances were good. They were actually awful. But in spite of that, God was working in the circumstances to bring good out of her situation. Working in the midst of political intrigue, working in the midst of an evil king's lust, right from the beginning, God was working it for good. Right from the beginning, he provided her favor with the chief eunuch. Right from the beginning, he provided separate quarters so that she didn't have to endure the other. Right from the beginning, she had seven attendants looking after her, giving the best of everything. God provided favor with her, with the king. And then God took her and used her to accomplish great things that is still impacting people today. That is the kind of God we serve. And I want to ask you this morning, what are your circumstances? Because your story is not just your story. Your story is also God's story. And so how does God want to work good in the midst of your circumstances? That's not saying your circumstances are good. They might be awful today. But God is still there and is part of his story. And he's wanting to work good in it. So whatever your story is, God is there in the midst of your story.